Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I've got some bittersweet news to start off this week. Our good friend and longtime associate editor, Pete Morsellino, has decided to move on from the show. Pete joined Seth and I right at the start of our transition away from the District of Wonders into an entirely independent podcast. That was just a month or two shy of three years ago. Since then, Pete's been an essential part of helping to shape how Tales to Terrify has evolved and developed. He's made an absolutely invaluable contribution to the show, and I hope you'll join me in wishing Pete all the best with his next creative ventures. Speaking of, if you're in the mood for a mix of creepy ambience, distorted demonic voices, and heavy-hitting guitar, check out Pete's horror-influenced music project, Serpent Moon at serpentmoon.bandcamp.com. Take care, Pete. Thanks for everything, and don't be a stranger. While we're on the topic of gratitude, this week I'm positively oozing with thanks for the generous support of two of our newest patrons, Joshua Passman and Stacy Sweeney. We're frightfully thankful that you've joined us behind the veil. And again, if you'd like to join us, patreon.com slash tales to terrify 
has everything you need to know. If you'd like another way to support the show, which I haven't mentioned for a little while, giving us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser is a great way to do that. We've had a couple of incredibly kind reviews lately, and it always means so much to us to hear our terrifying tales can make a real difference in someone's life. We'd love to hear about your experiences with the show, too. Speaking of experiences, let's make a fresh one, shall we? We have a pair of tales for you tonight about how hard it can be adapting to undead society and why keeping up with your neighbor can be a bloody pain in the ass. Our first story for the evening comes from Andrew Rucker-Jones. Andrew Rucker-Jones is a former IT expert and American expatriate living in Germany with his Georgian wife and their three children. He quit his day job to become an author, and he has yet to regret it. You can read his blog at selfdefeatistnavelgazing.wordpress.com Children of the Night, join me for Andrew Rucker Jones's The Odd One Out, a Tales to Terrify original. Shuffle, shuffle, drag, shuffle, drag, groan, moan, shuffle, son of a bitch! Twitch, twitch. Long, uncomprehending stares. Can zombies smile apologetically? I try. Low moan from my left, louder groan from my right. They gradually turn away and shuffle. I shuffle a little slower than the rest, falling behind from the pole position I inhabit so I can bring up the rear now that the rot of zombies I currently orbit has a definite direction. I'm less noticeable back here. Twitch, twitch, son of a bitch. Maybe they can hear the broken rhythm every now and again. Shuffle, twitch, twitch, shuffle. But it doesn't seem to sink in. Zombies, taken as a whole, are not the most observant subspecies of the undead. We shuffle in unison. Well, near unison. Twitch. Out of the zombie reserve we have lived in for almost as long as I can remember. About three years back. That part was easy. After the accidental emergence of zombies as a species, America declared us endangered. You wouldn't believe the problem we had with poachers. And the populace is worried about elephants. They herded us onto fenced-in reserves, but they didn't bother locking the gate. My brethren are, and I hate to sound arrogant here, but it is an honest and objective assessment, sadly limited in deductive capabilities. Lift the latch, 
push the gate and you're free. After I led my rot to a short-lived freedom, the wardens brought a padlock. So I crowded the entrance with everyone else when the rangers tranquilized a few of us for annual health checkups, and I espied the combination. They should have bought one with a key. Then it was a simple matter of waiting for the return of the abducted. Their teeth really were wider after their checkup. Rallying the rot and charging the gate. I admit that sounds more glamorous than it was. It was more like herding my rot and meandering toward the gate. Be that as it may, we're now shuffling away from the reserve with the light of the dawning sun heralding our re-entrance into the larger community. We wish to integrate. We happen upon a new hamlet only a short distance from the reserve. When you were in kindergarten, did you ever simulate a thunderstorm with your hands? The class starts by rubbing their thumbs against their index fingers. They gradually build up through rubbing hands together, clapping lightly, clapping loudly, then smacking their thighs to get to the climax. Then they go backwards until they are rubbing fingers again. Besides the thrill of making that much synchronized noise, it's a discovery that 30 little kids doing nothing more than rubbing fingers together is surprisingly audible. Had one zombie shuffled into the hamlet, possibly no one would notice. Take that slight shuffle sound and multiply it by 50. People come rushing out the doors of their single-level hovels with aluminum siding. Some of the terror-stricken are far enough off to scream and run away in their boxers and undershirts or with curlers still hanging willy-nilly from their hair. Others are close enough to grab and devour. Let it be stated for the record that zombies can be very fast grabbers, despite our generally slothful gait. Brains. Brains. Oh no, this is the worst part. I can neither resist the group urge to decry my longing for this recherche organ among the smorgasbord of human comestibles, nor am I in control of the inner pressure that builds when I'm forced to vocalize. Brains, fuck you, brains, shit, 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 brains. The stairs return. Even the victim at my feet looks up at me in horror, and I don't know whether it's because of his entrails hanging from my mouth or because of my outburst. This trumps the time I tried to ask Geraldine out. Geraldine isn't really her name, but that's what I call her. Small talk is difficult among zombies. Anyway, she laughed at my advances. Okay, it was more of a series of short moans, but that's the closest we get to laughing. Humor is different for zombies, and... I haven't figured it out yet, though I think Rob, again, my name for him, is practicing to be a zombie stand-up comedian. Don't ask me how I know, it's just a feeling. So, back to Geraldine. Later, I discovered that I had had a bit of fresh liver stuck between my teeth. I was so embarrassed, I found a different rot to shuffle with. Life as a 16-year-old, my estimate, is so fraught with peril. Brains? I bash open the skull of the man at my feet and scoop out his brains. I pass them around and nudge my friend Roger, my name for him, in the desiccated ribs to get him to take up the call. 
Okay, Roger isn't really my friend. I would call him more of a work friend. Brains, yells Roger. And all is well again as the others dive on the proffered gray matter dripping in my hand. I have to be careful I don't lose a finger in the mad rush. Mom always used to say a little generosity goes a long way. At least that's how I interpreted her groans when she would unexpectedly pass a cerebral cortex around the rot. Mom was loved by all, which is why I decided I wanted her to be my mother. I don't know who my real mother is, but I know Jenny loved me. That was my name for her until I started calling her Mom, and I think the switch confused her for the rest of her short life. She used to brush bits of spleen, gallbladder, and whatnot out of my unruly hair after a feeding frenzy. I suppose a cynic would say she was eating the leftovers, and she was a bit rough about it when she wrestled me to the ground and raked her blackening fingers through my hair, but I knew that was her way of grooming me as any mother would. The authorities shot her in the head during our first escape to scare our rot back onto the reserve. I've tried to appear kempt on my own since then, but feeding frenzies simply aren't the same without her. I suppose there will always be an empty space in me where Jenny once was, besides the empty space where my appendix once was before an unfortunate misunderstanding during mealtime a few months ago. The brains of our victim now germandized. We pick over entrails, lungs, heart. No one in our rot is an eyeball lover. Eyeballs split zombie opinion evenly down the middle. There is no one who kind of likes eyeballs. I guess the easiest way to explain it is by saying that eyeballs in the zombie experience are like anchovies, licorice, or Earl Grey tea for humans. No one has told me this outright. We haven't had a lively debate around the campfire, so to speak. But I have observed my compatriots in the presence of a fresh corpse. With nothing more of the carcass to titillate our palates, we leave the remains for the vultures and crows that are never far off and rejoin the next circle around their victim. The eyeballs are missing on this one. Esmeralda strikes again. That's not my name for her. She wears what used to be a blue plaid on a white field waitress outfit with a skirt that only reached halfway down the thighs and a tight bodice that accentuated her ample bosom. Now it's a dingy brown with streaks of black and a spangling of pale blue peeking through the filth. The poofs at the shoulders were lost long ago. Miraculously, her plastic name tag still hangs from her bodice at an awkward angle. Really, she doesn't even try for basic personal hygiene. And eating eyeballs only exacerbates the problem. Eyeballs, especially fresh ones, linger fiercely on the breath. I keep my distance. Shuffle. Shuffle, shuffle, moan. Off we go in search of a late mid-morning snack. Shuffle. Twitch, twitch, asshole, prick, fucker. Shuffle. Motor ticks is what I read they were called when we caught a library by surprise one day, shortly before our rot was discovered and herded onto a reserve, back in the golden age of zombieism. I tackled a medical student in the reference section, and while I was ripping her apart with my teeth and masticating on her small intestine, I caught sight of her book lying open on the floor. Cupping my hand across my mouth to keep splatters of intestinal juices off the page, I read it curiously 
and recognized a description of how I feel all the time. An inner urge that builds up pressure until it has to come out as an involuntary movement or vocalization. It can be subdued for a short while, but that results in a flurry of ticks afterwards to make up the difference. The medical student screamed on and I couldn't concentrate. So I put a finger to my lips and shushed her. This was a library after all. She only flailed and screamed all the more. I bet her bedside manner was deplorable. The textbook said it was Tourette syndrome, a neurodevelopmental disorder. At least it's not supposed to affect life expectancy. I want to rot nicely into a ripe old age. But the ticks are most bothersome. Once on a particularly long shuffle down a highway to the next town, I took the time to count them. I arrived at 24 before I became uncertain whether I had already counted pinching my buttocks together and gave up. Most are easily hidden from my compatriots, e.g. buttock pinching. Others are obvious, like when I yank my knee up, making it look to any zombie behind me like I'm skipping merrily down the highway, a veritable zombie Pollyanna on his way to the next disembowelment. It looks emasculating, which ruins my chances with the ladies, and as I've said, it kind of harshes the shuffle flow the rot has going. They pretend not to notice, and maybe they've gotten used to it, but I can always hear them in my mind thinking things like, there's Jerry, my name for myself, with his shuffle twitch, why can't he be like everyone else? Or, what is wrong with that freak Jerry? If there's a shortage of meat, I vote we devour him before we debase ourselves with roadkill. Most of my attention is spent disappearing into the crowd. My rot happens upon an assisted living community, which I call Chateau de Gentrification for my own amusement. They are a mixed blessing. On the one hand, there's usually not much to eat on the elderly, and it tends to be tough and dry. On the other hand, they're slow. We shuffle with what a zombie would call alacrity toward the modern building, its inviting facade, manicured gardens, and smooth, maintained walkways. Brains, brains, the call goes up again. I get excited and feel the pressure build. I fake a coughing fit. Brain, <coughs> fucker. <laughs> I garner a couple of condescending looks, but most don't seem to notice this time. They simply sprint shuffle on, splitting up to cover the exits. I head alone toward the fire escape. I know I won't get as much food. What octogenarian is going to shimmy down the fire escape? But it's worth it to gain a respite from the judging eyes of society. On my way up the ladder, an uncommonly spry geezer slams the door open from his floor to the fire escape and nearly runs into my arms. I nab him by the collar, son of a bitch, and continue his arc of motion, tossing him off in the direction he had been headed when he exited the building. He lands with a satisfying crack head first on the concrete walkway below, and I rush to the body like a cat to an electric can opener. I find the crack along his skull with my fingers and dig in, prying the pieces apart. Asshole fucker! 
The fractured, rounded bone disgorges its delectable contents onto the concrete in a flood of cerebral fluid accented by rivulets of blood. Situations of stress, whether distress or eustress is irrelevant, heighten the ticks. I lift the gray delicacy eagerly, yet gingerly touching it with only my fingertips. I jerk my right shoulder repeatedly in a half shrug, trying to ban the feeling that something underneath my shoulder blade doesn't quite fit, and if only I could shrug it the right way, I'll get at it properly and I'll be okay again. I know it's not true. The feeling always comes back in a few seconds. I tip the brain into my left palm and grab the spinal cord with my right hand. I sever it with the sharp edge of the broken skull. The trick is a quick, decisive movement, like plastic wrap against the dull, serrated edge of the thin box it's sold in. Alone with my brain, well, his brain, actually, I inhale its musky bouquet with eyes closed, then commence a kind of ritual I avoid when others are around. I never feel right about simply glutting myself on an unsanctified, frankly, messy brain. I start by removing the meninges, like peeling an orange. These I discard. No one else seems to worry about it, but I'm a little afraid of contracting meningitis. I run my fingers meditatively through every last fold of the brain, removing blood vessels and plaque, muttering a benediction of expletives over the precious object in my hand. The scraping of plaque and blood vessels is particularly difficult to do without rupturing one of the folds. Brains are very soft. But that's the challenge. All in all, this takes me about 15 minutes, but I get a sense of completeness from it and the brain before me becomes almost holy through my ritual cleansing. It is an act of reverence to cup the completed brain in my palms and nibble at it, indulging my gustatory sense, rolling the tender gray matter around on my tongue before swallowing. Occasionally, I rub the side of my tongue against my teeth. This is one of my more intrusive tics because it eventually leaves wounds on my tongue. I often substitute a unilateral flexing of muscles in my face that jerks one corner of my mouth down for a moment. It's more noticeable, but at least it doesn't hurt. Unless things get really intense and then I get a headache from that one, which is a problem, because Advil doesn't grow on trees. I am just licking the last salty juices off my palms when a synchronized shuffle comes around the corner behind me. I spring off the ground and whirl around, groaning once for effect. Three from my party have found me, and underneath their flat affect and dull eyes, they don't seem too happy about it. They pause for a moment, then shuffle past me, desultory moans, groans, and smackings escaping their blood-stained, putrefied lips. I fall into step behind them, always behind them. Everyone else from our community is assembling in a similar fashion, as if we were a plodding tidal wave that had broken upon the island of the assisted living community, rinsed their inhabitants away, and flowed past to break on some more distant shore. We shuffle, stumble through the gardens behind the building and off the lot, made clumsier than usual by our bloated guts. I try to third wheel with Rob and Roger, 
They spend a lot of time together, and I have my suspicions. To avoid Esmeralda, the eye-eater. Sometimes one out of our rot with whom I share casual intimacy beyond the simple exchange of a grunt in passing, we may be close enough to exchange a soulful moan in passing, asks me how I got this way. Some of the more erudite among them know that cannibalism is an infection vector for certain diseases of the brain, so they inquire with feigned detached curiosity if it was perhaps something I ate. I see through them. They're worried they might eat the wrong brain someday, possibly mine. Another may ask if, perchance, my father suffered from ticks as well, alluding to the well-known weak genetic link that has been empirically demonstrated among sufferers of Tourette syndrome. Yet another will take me aside where we can't be overheard and recommend psychotherapy, invariably praising it as a mature discipline and confiding that he gladly tells anyone of his own experience in therapy and no, no, never feels shame. Or, that's what I understand from the subtle inflections of their groans. Communication among zombies is an inexact science. The truth is, I have no idea how I got this way. I woke from a feverish phantasmagoria three years ago, during which I imagined seeing disembodied shrugging shoulders, tongues rubbing against teeth, pinched buttocks, twitching lips, all throwing themselves in the path of mindless marauders bent on devouring me. Upon regaining consciousness, I discovered I suffered specific amnesia. I could remember the general knowledge I had accumulated in my pre-zombie life, but I knew nothing about myself. I don't know if my Tourette syndrome predated my zombification or was awakened as a result. I only remember looking up with scientific curiosity into the blank, disinterested faces of a huddle of zombies prodding and sniffing me to determine if I was good eats. My first involuntary vocalization bubbled up, and I cursed them all as whores. It was not the best first impression I could have made. Not edible, a bit too foul-mouthed for mixed company. The circle drew back, expressions immutably and unapologetically uncomprehending. Though when I think back on it, I could almost swear I saw one facepalm in my peripheral vision. I knew I was alone. The sun begins to set. There is heavy cloud cover. Before long, I will be left staring through the darkness of a moon-deprived night at the backs of my fellow sojourners. What should I call them? Rot is a collective noun devoid of social connotations. Click? Eh, too exclusive. Association? Too inclusive. Family? Too accepting. Zombies are a species unified in their single-minded pursuit of fresh internal organs from unwilling Homo sapiens donors, their social identity achieved through unquestioning conformity. And then there's little old fucking me bringing up the rear. That was Andrew Rucker-Jones's The Odd One Out, as read by Andrew Gibson.
Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming, and he remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson, or, for the more romantically inclined, Blake Lockhart. You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in the Narrator Nook and the Haven Discord servers, links to which you can find in the show notes. Thank you, Andrew. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Carson Winter. Carson Winter is an author, punker, and raw nerve. His work can be found in Vastarian, a literary journal, Apex, and the No Sleep podcast. He lives in the Pacific Northwest. Listen with me, children of the night, to Carson Winter's In the Company of Bastards, a Tales to Terrify original. Oh, my bones hurt. The sky is gray and a little smoky, and I think we might get rain soon. I can see the sky go on forever like that. Just endless slate. I'm standing on the roof of my old house, and everything hurts. It didn't used to. But that's just getting old. I raise the rifle and stare down its scope. Charlie's house is diagonal from mine, four houses down on the opposite side of the street. My eyes graze his windows, his front door. My barrel nuzzles his bedroom and parlor. He's asleep, of course. 
He's always asleep right now. I pull the trigger and the rifle jumps in my arm, and the last window I can see from my vantage point shatters. Nothing will wake those bastards up. Nothing. I sigh. Consider my options. It's a nice house, but everything Charlie has is nice. It's not as nice anymore with all the bullet holes. I climb down and go inside because it's getting dark. All my bones hurt. It's going to rain. Because I'm older, I'm used to taking naps. I like them myself. They're a good thing. I only sleep for four hours every night, so it makes sense that I sleep a little during the day. I hate that it makes me like Charlie, but at least I'm rested by the time night comes. I sit up from my spot and take a swig of whiskey and look out the window. Sure enough, there he is. Two moons glowing where his eyes should be. I pretend not to see him at first, but he talks anyway. Morning, Dale, he says. Hey, are you going to invite me in? No. Why not? You know why. It's cold out here, buddy. We're not friends. We could be. We won't be. Not if I have anything to say about it. Charlie just stands there for a while unblinking. He's probably hungry for once in his life. That makes me laugh. Charlie, hungry. None of the others bother me like Charlie does. They go out to different places and bother different holdouts. There's others like me, I know. They can't all be like Charlie. The world can't all be bastards, I tell myself. I can kill you, you know. You can try. I can burn your house down. I can get a gun and shoot you through your window. It's easy. I laugh, but that's not what you want. I touch two fingers to my throat. You can't get me in here. We stare at each other with only the window between us. Charlie leaves when his lizard brain tells him there's no shot at a meal. He doesn't turn around, though. He walks backward until I can't see his eyes anymore. Alone in my house, I am for once glad it is only one story. It's the smallest house on the block, but for me it is everything I ever worked for. It is mine. One bedroom, a study, a living room, and a kitchen. I worked for it. It was mine. I never married, so I did not need anything more. I did not have children, so I did not need anything more. I was not like Charlie at all, really. It is something I remind myself of every day and night. I don't know where Charlie goes to feed. He's the only bastard in my neighborhood. I'm the last holdout. I wake up in the early morning just in time to see him scurrying back to his large home. Charlie disappears somewhere along the side of his house, and I can't see where. I see it every day, and I still can't tell where he goes. In an hour when the sun is out, I walk across the street, looking both ways, even though there aren't any cars anymore. Four houses down across the street. It's not a long walk, but I enjoy it because everything is quiet and the air is still cool in the morning. And I think maybe when I get back, I'll have a glass of dark beer. It'll be on Charlie, of course. He always keeps beer in his garage. He keeps his home unlocked to taunt me. I enter through the front door and look at his living room. This is probably the hundredth time I've done this, and every time it fills me with disgust. 
The whole place is too big. Charlie likes blank walls and black furniture with hard angles. It's very different from my small home. Sniffing, I try to find a hint of death. There is none. The house smells clean, even if it isn't. I go downstairs to the basement and hope to find him and kill him. Nothing. Just an empty room like always. But even the basement is very nice. More hard edges. More clean smell. I walk over to the walls and wonder if maybe he's hidden inside them. They can do that, I hear. Once they turn into mist, all bets are off. I laugh at the idea as I go upstairs, thinking about Charlie having to sleep in the walls while his big old bed remains untouched. It used to be that his bedroom was the only room in the house that smelled, but now even that's faded. Just a hint of iron. It makes me mad, honestly, because it ought to smell bad still. But the blood on his sheets is hardened into a big scab. I don't know where his wife went. That makes me laugh, too. She must have wised up after she killed him and went somewhere warmer. She was a bastard, too, but I hope wherever she is, she's happy. If things like her can be happy. Because she was at least smart enough to leave Charlie in the dust. I go into the bathroom and poke around for a couple of minutes, reading his prescriptions and looking at his shower head. I know they don't breathe, but every other minute I get real quiet and see if I can hear him. When I get tired, I go to the garage and take some of his beer. At home, I read and nap and eat and think and wonder where he is in that big damn house. Night comes, and I'm awake again on the lookout. Those moon eyes come back, and I'm angrier than usual because I don't go to his house every day. But on the days I do, it really gets me going. Hi, Dale, he says. Are you enjoying my beer? Someone might as well. I don't mind you coming into my home. It wouldn't matter if you minded it. I'd do it anyway. I know, but I don't care. I like the smell of you. I'm going to kill you tomorrow. I'm going to kill you tonight. You can't. He blinks and disappears in the dark. I hear him, though. Just wait. I wait. Lungs fill with air. I really wish I could still see him. My bones hurt, and I know if it came down to it, I wouldn't be able to kill him hand to hand. I'd have to wait till morning. Those bastards are strong. I hate to admit it, but they are. I can't hurt him the way he can hurt me. And worse, if he decides, he could turn me into a bastard like him. Even if I can't kill him back, I had thought about this a lot. It was easy to think about when living alone. I'd sit in my chair and put my book on my lap and sip my whiskey and look up at the ceiling and dream with open eyes the night that Charlie finally decides to do me in. If he did use fire as he suggested before, I'd be in trouble. But I don't know if he can use fire. Bastards like him go up in flames too easily. I grab my rifle and stand by the window. Rigid, watching. Everything is black, and I can't see his moon eyes for anything, but I do hear rustling, the sound of footsteps on cold, crisp grass. I raise my rifle. I don't think a bullet can kill him, but I also have a bowie knife on my side, and I don't know a lot, but I know it worked in the book. 
I haven't seen one die before, but I bet if I cut out his heart and took his head, the bastard would be good and dead forever. The sound of rustling. The air is heavy like a corpse, and I'm sure that Charlie has chosen this night to kill me. It could have been any night, really, but it was this night. Charlie, I yell, I'm going to kill you tonight. I'm going to kill you. No answer from Charlie. I stood there for an hour, blood rushing in my ears, waiting for something to happen. When I hear a voice, there's someone out there, anyone, I need help. The voice is coming from the blackness outside my window, and I know it's a trick. There's always fools willing to suck up to these bastards. This is a young woman's voice, tight and strained, maybe tearful. I can't see any moon eyes, but I can hear her in the middle of the street, sobbing quietly. You just brought me here, she squeals. Why am I here? I've seen this before. He does this sometimes. I have to turn away because, really, she's just a decoy, a sacrifice. The woman sees the light from my small house and comes to the window. She's scared, all right. She's young, dressed in jeans, boots, and a heavy coat. Her eyes are wide, and she's plenty scared. You, please, can you let me in? I cannot. He's going to kill me. I believe you, I say. You have to help me. He took me here. I don't know what to do. I'm going to die tonight. I didn't have anything to say to that. This is your home, right? Can you let me in? If it's your home, he can't get in, right? Not unless you invite him. That's right, but I can't let you in. Why not? She whispers. Because I can't trust you. You can trust me. I'm human. Look at me. I'm just like you. Yeah, I know. I'm sad looking at her. If I can make it till morning, I'm going to burn Charlie's house down. Maybe you can hide, I suggest. I was hiding when he took me. I thought no one could find me, but they can smell us. We can't hide from them. No, I guess we can't. Why won't you help me? I already told you. She stamps her feet and backs away from the window. Her voice gets quiet. He's going to kill me, you know. Sorry. What am I supposed to do? I think for a moment. Just don't go peacefully. That's all I can think of. Sorry again. Footsteps on my roof. I can hear you, you bastard. The woman looks up and she screams. I can see his eyes. Do you have a knife? I say. If you have a knife, you could try to get him in the heart. That might work. I don't have a knife, she says. I don't have anything. That's too bad. If you had a knife, that might help. I don't have a knife, though. I don't have anything. Well, I say. I can't help you. Maybe if you went into one of the neighboring houses. Surely someone has a knife. There's got to be something. Charlie will kill her any second because that's what Charlie does. His feet are still overhead and he's not moving, so I think he's waiting for me to come out and save her. He thinks I'm going to be the hero. I yell up. Go ahead and do your worst, Charlie. I'm not going outside. And then the woman straightens herself out and stands dead still in the street. She looks up. 
I'm very angry. I've been tricked. What do I do now? She says. He's not going to come out. Charlie says, You can still smash his windows. You can shoot him. You can blow the lock off his door. Any of that will be fine. Oh, okay, she says. In desperate times, people often make the worst decisions. They befriend bastards for survival. I'm mad at myself, really. I should never have believed her. I aim my rifle at the glass, and the woman darts backwards into the black. Probably retrieves something. I hear her footsteps, and I pretend that I'm following something in the blackness of the night. Moon Eyes is still above me, watching the whole scene with what I assume is ill amusement. Nothing happens for a long time. An hour ticks by on the clock, and I don't hear any movement on my roof, which means he's still there. These bastards can wait forever, or at least till morning. During this time, I consider the rules of his existence. What constitutes ownership? The best thing about Charlie is that the fundamentals of his state force him to respect property. He cannot cross my threshold without permission. But surely there are ways around that. If I were to sign over my deed, I assume he would be able to come and go freely. But this is just idle thought. The clock is ticking and I'm waiting for the woman to come back to flush me out of my home and into the night so that Charlie can have his way with me. Across the street, four houses down, I can see the faint outline of his home. It's so very large compared to my own. When the hour passes, they finally make their move. Glass shatters and I'm running to my bedroom just in time to see the eye of a flashlight disappearing under the sill. Fast footsteps travel to the other side of the house, and I hear another crash, and another, and another. Wind billows through my home, and I realize that I'm going to be frozen out. I think about the poem, the one I learned forever ago as a boy, Fire or Ice. And I have to hand it to Charlie, because I never really thought of this. He couldn't get me here, but he could make me move into a place that is not my home. Charlie is smart and I realize as the cold creeps in and makes my bones hurt even more that I need to put a stop to this. Outside there is laughter. Did I do good? Yes, you did good. Will you do it for me now? No, not tonight. Okay, she says. Their voices echo. I creep to my front door. The woman asks, what about him? He'll be fine. You can go now. But I want to be helpful. I can kill him. I'm not afraid. They turn the lock, quietly. His voice is soothing. I know you're not afraid. I know. You're a faithful servant. The door inches open, and I fit my rifle barrel in the crack. I can see her. She's looking up to the roof. She talks with her hands. I can go in there right now and gut him real good. Charlie begins to say something. No, not, but the sharp interjection of my rifle interrupts him. The gun bucks in my hand, and for a second, the street is illuminated. Part of the woman's head is missing. She falls to the ground in a heavy heap, and I'm glad that she's dead. Dale, he says. 
He sounds upset at me, but it doesn't last long because his feet come off the roof in a second and I can see his moon eyes on top of where her body was. The sound of his eating is unbearable. I close the door and consider my next move. My bones hurt so much it doesn't take long. I prepare for just about everything, so I have plenty of supplies. I really only need two, though. The house smells of fumes so bad that I think I might as well thank that dead woman for breaking my windows. When everything is good and done, and I know it's all going away, I say goodbye quietly before going to the door and opening it. Charlie, let's end this. Come on inside. We can chat it out. The night is silent for a long while. I stand on the threshold, a slippery floor behind me. Come on in, Charlie. I'm inviting you. And when you get inside, I'm going to blow your brains out. Another bit of silence, and I close the door. Just as I turn around, I hear his voice. You know, guns don't hurt me. I can't tell where it's coming from, but I leave the door ajar. I've never tried before. I'm trying tonight. I can't stop you from trying. You can't stop me from killing you, either. Then closer. You're all bluster. I turn around to the living room, and I'm not so surprised when I see the bastard. He's right there on my carpet, smiling. I'm whatever I need to be to get you inside, I say. Charlie looks at me quizzically for a moment, and I flick my zippo as he figures it all out. My home is a crematorium. I toss it and hope it hangs in the air long enough for me to get to the door. I can feel the whoosh of the flames at my back as I jog out into the night, bones hurting. When I turn to look back, black smoke is pouring from the windows as Charlie thrashes around my living room, burning. Rain falls. Just like I thought. When you're older like me, it's hard to start over. You get used to how things were. But that's life. And even I, with my old body, can weather a change or two if I have to. The new house is much too big, but I don't mind. The bullet holes are easily plugged. The bed just needs a change of sheets. It's not so bad, after all. Plus, there's beer and a hell of a liquor cabinet. Across the street, four homes down, a small, ugly home is smoldering, and I'm glad I don't live there. That was Carson Winters in The Company of Bastards, as read by Dan Gerzinski. Dan is a broadcast and audio engineer by trade and has worked on many projects for local public stations. Lately, he's been recording literary works for LibriVox, as well as Tales to Terrify, and has just finished narrating his eighth audiobook. Thank you, Dan. Well, children of the night... The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible 
by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we gnaw at your sanity with more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 